We are rounding out Esther today. The passage we're going to be reading through this morning, Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make... uh, they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, uh, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what he had faced in that, and what they had faced in this matter, what had happened to them, the Jews firmly bound themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahel, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter of Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ashuaris in words of peace and truth, that the days of Purim should be observed as their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther bound them, and as they had bound themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and lamenting. In command, uh, I'm sorry, and the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. This is God's word, and you may be seated. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Um, well, if it is your first time joining us here at Refuge Christian Fellowship, welcome. We're uh, yeah, glad that you're here. And um, I say this every week just to kind of bring us, remind us what we're doing, but we have dedicated this year to... Uh, biblical literacy, because we have found that uh, although Christians claim to be people of the Bible, most of us have not actually read it. So we said, hey, let's take a whole year and let's read it for ourselves so we can know it for ourselves, know what it teaches, and we can um, practice and obey God's word and be people of the book. So Along with that, we've been going through the Bible and doing different series and just kind of looking at it from like a 30,000-foot view of what God has for his church, what God has for his people. Uh, We've been looking at main themes, characters, storyline, and so this morning we are concluding a very short series through the book of Esther, Uh, and especially if you know me, this is a very short series, right? I mean, it took me like two years to go through the book of John. Um, 
So this is a very, this is like a snapshot of Esther. And so we've been mentioning that this is a really crazy book to find in the Bible. Um, there's no mention of Yahweh or the generic term Elohim. There's no mention of Torah, temple, prayer. There are no visions, no prophetic denunciations, encouragements, no miracles. And so this is a really strange book to find in the Bible. God not being mentioned, I've, I've said this every week, but God not being mentioned is actually on purpose. It's on purpose. Now, we don't know if God was actually mentioned in the story itself or not, but the author purposefully leaves out these things because this is what life is often like. Where is God? What is happening in the world? Does God care? Does he know? Who are these leaders that are ruling the world? Why does the world feel like it's just chaotic and haphazard? And so this whole book is written in such a way that the reader is forced to look for the, the, the invisible hand of God and to see how God is actually doing a work, not through miracles, not through prayers, not through temple teaching, but through people. He's just working through people. And sometimes he's working through people's sinfulness and brokenness, their faithlessness, their, even their, I think I said this, evil. He's working through these things. And then oftentimes he's also working through their faithfulness and through their commitment to him. And so this is just a beautiful book to see how God often works in the world. The province of God is all over this book. And as I've been saying, the book of Esther is very relevant for today because we are living in times where we're not familiar with experiencing divine intervention and the miraculous, the way that the Bible often describes it. And God is often out of sight to the naked, to the naked eye. Um, another piece of this that we've been highlighting going through this book is that just like Esther was someone who was born into exile, many of us in the church have been born into a post-Christian era. And we are... Uh, Morality, Christian morality is a foreign concept to us. It's very normal today in the church to have uh, just divorce be rampant, uh, sexual addiction, um, promiscuity. Uh, you know, just often you get that, well, I mentioned this the other week, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not following Jesus at this time. Uh, we have this like very like smorgasbord version of Christianity. It's very post-Christian, like it's just an option, and so I'll just kind of take my good options from the Bible, and then I'll apply them to the other things that I really think about the world. Um, and that's very similar to, to what we find in this book. These are characters who are not living out their Jewish identity. They are not practicing Torah. They are not... Uh, in prayer and, 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 the, and the things that the Jewish nation had been known for for centuries. Nevertheless, Esther is a story that chronicles God's surprising preservation of his people. God is faithful even when they're faithless. Um, he preserves them even when their existence is threatened by a superpower. Now, last week we saw how the story of Esther has this incredible turning point in it, where Esther is faced with a life-altering decision, whether or not she will identify with and take her place among the people of God, 
or whether she's going to live this insulated life in the palace, protected, um, so it seems, from this threat of life. And we talked about how in this, Mordecai kind of you know, tells her, listen, you may, you may think that you're going to survive this, but you, in fact, your family, your father's household, and you yourself will not survive this. And we talked about the loss of spiritual identity being such an important thing. And, and, and sometimes we, we, we look at the world around us, we think just about the threat to Christianity, we think about the threat to our welfare, sometimes we think about just the threats to our lives. And I think in the West we exaggerate those quite a bit. But nonetheless, we insulate our Christian faith because we think that we're actually protecting ourselves. But what we're doing is we're actually just slowly burning out and killing the, the life of God in us. And so we looked at Esther and how she is this picture of a spiritual revival as she takes up her identity and the cause of the people of God. So as we wrap Esther up this morning, I want to say just kind of one thing about the book of Esther. And we said a lot of things, right? We said the book of Esther is many things. It's a story for our times. We've talked about that quite a bit. It's a story of irony, right? You think about all the times where the story, the tables turn. Uh, we'll, we'll read about this today. Uh, Haman builds a 75-foot stake that he's going to impale Mordecai on, and it turns out that Haman himself is the one that is impaled upon this stake. And you've got multiple uh, ways in which there is just so much irony in the story. It's a comedy. Remember the buffoon king in the beginning, how he doesn't know what to do, and he's always asking everybody else what to do. He's this drunken fool, and we've just seen these like comedic characters in this. It's Shakespearean, as we said in our uh, intro to the story. It's also a story about sovereignty and providence, as I was just saying a moment ago, a story about the invisible hand of God and how he is at work in the world even when we don't see it. It's a story about coming home. It's a story about returning back to our roots, finding out who we really are, and it's about God's receptivity to take us uh, and make us what we are. But most of all, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, I think Esther is a story of remembrance. So let's kind of walk through these verses again. Esther 9, 23 through 28. So, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do, what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders, writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. There's some irony right there, right? And that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." 
So at the end of all this, the Jews, are, it seems, are just kind of looking around at themselves, and it's almost like we've come home. We've, we've, we've come back to our identity. How did we ever get there? And so what they decide to do is, we will never forget. You guys remember 9-11? That was the slogan, right? Never forget. Never forget. Look what happened to our nation. Never forget. In a similar type way, and, you know, right? The Jews bind themselves and say, we will never forget. We will remember this. We will remember what has happened here, what has transpired. We bind ourselves to remember. And this story has a call to remembrance all over it. Even recalling and referencing the fact that Mordecai and Haman are part of an ancient conflict. Nikolai touched on this uh, on the second week of Esther. But there's a story that goes back even further into Scripture that is part of the story. And that is that God called Saul the king to wipe out the Amalekites because these were people who went after the weak and the helpless. These were oppressive, wicked people. And remember, we've talked about this many times, but God has this very tender heart for the fatherless, for the widow, for the poor, and for the foreigner. And when you touch those people, when you oppress those people, Scripture says you touch the apple of God's eye. You have greatly offended him. And these people, the Amalekites, they're these wicked people that go after the weak and go after the helpless. And so God says to Saul the king, listen, you are going to wipe out Amalek and Agag the king. Don't leave anything left over. Don't take any of the spoil. These people need to be judged. We talked about judgment a couple months ago. If you have problems with biblical judgment, which you should, everyone should, uh, please come talk to me. Please listen to our podcast. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but I have, and I do, and I will with you over coffee, but not today. Okay, so it's this ancient conflict, right? Saul, the king of Israel, and Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And what happens is Saul doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He doesn't kill the king, and he keeps all the best things for the children of Israel. So he totally disobeys God. And this is this crazy story because Saul is of the family of Kish. That's his dad. That's his family line. And when we're introduced to Mordecai, it's like, oh yeah, Mordecai, he's a Benjamite. He's of the family of Kish. And it's like, beep, 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 beep. Like your biblical radar is supposed to be going off. This is a hyperlink back to this story. Oh, and Haman, oh yeah, he's an Agagite, a child of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And again, this is like the the hyperlink takes you back to that story. So this is this continuing story, this continuing conflict that has happened. Now, pause there for a minute, and let's go back a little bit further. Because when the children of Israel are coming out of the land of Egypt, they have just come out of slavery, and they're making their way to Sinai to meet with God, to get God's laws and his commands, to be you know, to be brought into the covenant, to be God's special people in this new way. It says that the people of Amalek came out and attacked the children of Israel. And this is the first story ever recorded in the Bible. Okay, this is the first time God says, hey, Moses, take a pen or whatever, you know, uh, take a all and chisel this, you know, right, whatever they did back in those days. Write this down. 
He says, write this down for a memorial for the people of Israel. And God, in essence, says this, remember, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So biblically, this becomes a picture or a metaphor of God's promise to eventually and finally destroy all evil. All evil that preys upon the weakness of people. God despises this. This is not what God has created power and authority for. God has created power and authority to rule well, to rule in peace, to rule in justice, to rule in righteousness. And so God gives this promise here in this story. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I find it very interesting that this is a story of remembrance. Remember this, he says to Moses. Remember this. Remember my promise that I will end all evil, that I will end all oppression. Now check this out. Okay, This is such a cool thing. During the Feast of Purim, the book of Esther is read in commemoration of the saving of the Jewish people from Haman, the antagonist, the descendant of Agad, the Amalekite, right? On the basis of Exodus 17, 14, which I just referenced, where the Lord promised to blot out the name of Amalek, it is customary for the audience to make noise, to boo and shout whenever Haman is mentioned in order to desecrate and blot out his name. Guys, hello, who's awake this morning? That is like the coolest thing ever. Right? We're carrying on the story. We're remembering. So when the story is told, boo, boo, like, oh, we don't even want to hear his name. You know what's fascinating? In the story of the Bible, the story of Exodus, we begin this story and we're introduced to the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is this wicked oppressor who is oppressing God's people, putting them into slavery, and he's causing the women to drown their baby boys in the Nile River. And as the story goes on, we're told about these two women who are really courageous. And, and they're named. I, I can't remember their names at this very moment. Actually, maybe, maybe we should do that. Why not, right? The midwives. Where are their names here? Yeah, Shipra. And Pua. They're really good names. That's why they recorded them. Shipra and Pua. So, you know, pregnant couples. Some names to consider. Here's the point. Um, Shipra and Pua are named. Miriam is named. She's a a heroine of the story. These women are heroines of the story. Moses' mother is a heroine of the story. You know who isn't named? May his name be blotted out from the pages of history. The Pharaoh. He has no name, only a title, just so you know that he is the ruler, but he is not named in the story because may his name be blotted out from history for what he did to the people of God. You know who else isn't named in the scriptures? The Satan, the accuser of God's people who accuses them night and day. We do not know his name. Some, you know, wonder, oh, Lucifer, you know, from these texts from the prophets. We don't know. He's called the devil, and he's called the Satan. These are not names. These are titles. The accuser. He is not named. May his name be blotted out from the pages of history, and it will be. When God sets up his rule and reign, he will be forgotten. But the righteous, 
and the kingdom of God will go on and on and on and on. This story is about remembrance, church. Remember God's promises. Remember what he has done. Remember what he promises to do. Now, in Scripture, a call to remembrance, especially if it's tied to a covenant sign or a ceremony, it's a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept for people to recalibrate their lives according to what is being remembered. It, it's, it's to be life-shaping, culture-making. It's not just, oh yeah, Remember, recall, but recalibrate, bring your, line back, bring your life back in line with the story that's being told. And remember, we've been talking about this all year. Make God's story your story. That's the invitation of Scripture, to be caught up in the story of God and to be recalibrated into God's story, the great story of the world. So let's talk for a little bit just about what is being recalled in this story. And I've already kind of given it away because I got heated in a moment of passion, but let's talk about what's being remembered and then what it might look like for us, God's people living in modern times, to remember. So, remember, I think the first thing, or one of kind of the only things we see that the Jews are doing here, is remembering the reversal of fortunes. So, from where we left off last week, and we don't have time to just go into all the nuances of the story, and you're going to start reading it today, right? Is that right? Yobel people? Who's got my back? Esther was today, right? Dude, you guys, today, okay. It was yesterday. Oh, we finished it yesterday. That's right, that's right. I did my Bible reading. (laughs) I actually listened, okay. All right, so we just finished the story of Esther. So if you did your Yobel, you heard it, right? So we're not going to go into all the details. But from where we left off last week, the next scenes of Esther chronicle the downfall of Haman and the plot to annihilate the Jews. The irony that is employed in this story is incredible. First, Haman seeks to exalt himself and is humbled first by having to parade Mordecai around on the king's horse in the king's royal garments and from his own mouth proclaiming, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Here's the crazy thing. Haman is leaving the palace after having dinner with Esther and the king, and he sees Mordecai, and it just ruins his whole day. And he goes home, and he tells everybody, look how rich I am. I'm amazing, and I've done all this, and the king has honored me, and he's made me the second ruler in the land, and I've been invited to this dinner with the king and the queen. It's just amazing, but nothing matters because of Mordecai. He, like, won't bow down to me, and he's just so distraught about this. And so all of his friends and his wife are like, here's what you should do. You should make this, and your translation, if you're reading SV, says gallows, like a hanging pole. It's not what actually happened in Persia. It was a stake, a massive stake to impale someone's body on. And if you've got, you know, an ESV, it will have that, like, in the margins. Like, it's way more grotesque than a noose. That's the whole point. So, they come up with this saying, oh, here's what you should do. Build a 75-foot 
pole. Like, who does that, first of all? 75-foot pole and just impale Mordecai up on that thing. And go tomorrow morning and ask the king, like, look, this guy's a problem. We need to kill him. So he goes in the next morning. He has it built. He goes in the next morning. He's so excited about it. And the king has had this crazy dream where he remembers that, like, something's wrong. Something's, like... Oh, no, he doesn't dream. He has a bad night of sleep, and he, like something's off, something's wrong. So he looks in the book of remembrance, realizes that Mordecai saved his life, and nothing has been done to reward him. And so Haman comes in the next morning. He's like, oh, Haman, you're here. Great. What should we do for the person the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks it's him because he's so full of himself, right? And he's like, oh, well, let me think here. Like, be arrayed in the king's robes, be given, you know, his crown, and be ridden on his horse, and then have this person go out. And he's like, Haman, that's amazing. Take Mordecai and go do this for him. And you can just imagine, like, wait, what is happening right now? And so he does this, and then it says after he's done, he puts his cloak over his head, and he runs home, and he's like this, like, like you know, like, I don't know, like little scared man, like, you know, like throwing a fit, and he goes home to his family, and he's like, this is what happened. And they're like, oh, wait, did you say Mordecai's a Jew? Oh, you would begin to fall before the Jews because the Jews, nobody can come against them. It's like this really weird like turn in the story where like beforehand they knew he was the Jew, but like now because of this happening, they're like, oh, this is like, this is a thing. You're going down. You're going to die. And right then, like as soon as they say it, the king's eunuchs are like, dinner time. And they take him to the palace and he goes to the palace and he's there and he's probably thinking about this, but he's trying to enjoy himself. And then what happens next Haman, who everybody in the empire had to bow to, bows before Queen Esther, the Jew, and begs for his life because it's been revealed that he has come up with a plot to annihilate her people. And it's this idea, Haman, it's in the text there. He is, they say to him, his friends and his wife say to him, you have begun to fall. And then it recounts that before Esther, he falls before her on her couch, begging for his life. You can see that in verses 13 and verses 7, 8. Sorry, guys, this is like Bible nerd like day for Char, so just bear with me. But just this incredible like reversal of fortunes. The irony here is amazing. And then the next thing that happens, right? The king is so upset, he leaves, and then he comes back in, and it looks like Haman's trying to force himself upon Esther because he's so desperate. And the king is like, what are you doing in my own house doing this? And he, he has his head covered, and he's like, he's looking for something to do to Haman to, to hurt him, right? And all of a sudden, those weird eunuchs show up again, and they're like, there's a gallow, there's a stake at Haman's house. It's 75 feet tall. And the king's like, good, impale him on it. And there it is. There's the end of the story of, like, Haman. It's nuts. Like, who are these people? How do they just keep showing up out of nowhere? Like, dinner time, you know, like, death time. You know, like, they just show up. It's a play. It's a, it's a theatrical performance. And I am not doing it justice this morning. But it's just amazing. So Haman himself is impaled upon this stake by order of the king. And all of Haman's estate, wealth, and even his power in regards to the kingdom is bestowed upon Mordecai. And from here on out, Esther and Mordecai set up a counter law and plan so that the Jews can protect themselves on these days that were appointed for their annihilation. 
This brings about the destruction of all the enemies of the Jews, prosperity and peace in the empire for the Jewish people. It's a complete reversal of fortunes. Now, let me just make one note that's kind of out of context. But remember, Saul was told not to take any of the spoil from Agag the king. You know, it's very interesting. In this story, the Jews do not take the spoil. And so it really is the retelling of the story of Saul and Agag. And the Jews... This time, obey the command from 1 Samuel. They don't touch the desecrated things. They want no part in the filth and the plot of Haman. Side note, moving on. The story summarizes all of this reversal this way. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So you could really call the story of Esther, the reverse occurred. It could be the subtitle, right? So where we had previously read, and the city of Susa was thrown into confusion because of this law about the annihilation of the Jews. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry, and he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every providence, excuse me, province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. We now read... Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves, we're Jews. Okay, great. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Nobody knows what that means. Like, what are we doing? Circumcision here? Are we doing baptism? Like, people are becoming Jews? Anyway, but there seems to be like this conversion of these pagan peoples to the community of God's people. So I keep saying this is a story of remembrance. And here's what I want to highlight. It is. It is a story of remembrance. It's a, and, it, and it's part of a bigger story of remembrance. And this is what Scripture tells us. In the kingdom of God, there will be a complete turnaround. The reverse will occur. Those now on top will be on the bottom. And those now, the lowest of the low, will be lifted exceedingly high. This is the thing that the Jews set to remember by inaugurating Purim. They say, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast Pur to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So something to remember, church, is this, I think, from the story. God will one day banish all evil from his world. He will banish all evil from his world. God will set all things right He will judge all evil and sin, all exploiters and tyrants, all oppressors and dehumanizers. He will blot out the name and remembrance of the evil Hamans and Amaleks of this world forever. 
Never forget that. Never forget that. Second thing that we can remember from this story, God will preserve and exalt the righteous. The picture of Mordecai being given the second place of power in the whole empire is a picture of that. And of course, this isn't an isolated story or teaching in the Bible. We have many uh, teachings about this, and we have many pictures in many places, from Joseph to Moses to David and finally to Jesus himself. God takes what is lowly and weak, what is trampled over and despised, and he exalts it to the heights. And we can rest assured that God will one day turn this world right side up. I I often tell myself, um, you know, Tolkien's line, everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. And I just love seeing this in the story of Esther, that when the righteous Mordecai is exalted, it says that the city shouted for joy. And there was honor and there was peace. There there are all of these things that describe shalom, that describe flourishing and uh, community and harmony. It's this beautiful picture of restoration. So this story highlights for us the truth that evil is turned in on itself and it cannot prosper against the purposes and promises of God. And that is something we need to remember, we need to never forget. Now, how do we call these things to remembrance? So last week, we really focused on an awakening. Um, Awakening to reality of the cultural moment that we're in. Uh, We talked just like this call to come home and to re-engage with our faith, which is absolutely vital to the Christian life. But let, let me just kind of put something out there this morning. Is there a way that God's people can have more consistency in our lives? Or are we just subject to this continual cycle of regression and progression? To continually be on the verge of burnout unless we have some radical crisis, right? Some existential crisis, some... Or, on the other end, some ecstatic experience. I I think I've shared this before, but I have a friend who is part of the Orthodox tradition, which is very liturgical. And he said, you evangelicals, you guys are so emotionally up and down all the time. What you need is liturgy. You need a rhythm to bind you. You need these habits of the heart. You need to, to... have these habits that will shape your desires, that will bring kingdom of God, that will bring the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the power of God into focus daily in your life. Because all of us are doing this constantly. And we just look like everybody else in the world except for our high is Jesus. Our high is like this weird thing that we do when a band plays and all of a sudden we're like, <laughs> you know, like it's like going on a roller coaster. It's like, here we go, and pump, 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 or yeah, jazzercise. That's what just popped into my head. Where am I? I don't know. But it's just like this, Jason Stewart calls them jumpy, clappy songs. And if you're jumpy and clappy, praise God, 
good. But it's crazy that we think that that is like the most high moment. And then you go out there and you just kind of live in the slump of the whole week. But then Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming and we'll do the jumpy clappy thing again and we'll be up and we'll be up, you know. But then Monday comes and we'll be down, you know. And it's just like this like endless cycle, you know. Is there a way to remember so we don't fall subject to constant polar extremes? I think there is. Or take it this way, is the plan of Jesus for his people that we just live these like, you know, lives of emotional polarity? Does that properly represent what God has done for his people? It doesn't seem to fall in line with the words of Paul, how he would often say, I am convinced that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. He says it's power, not just to be saved, but to live. And to live a full life, as Jesus claims again and again in the book of, excuse me, in the gospel of John. Does this polarity properly display the life of Jesus to the world? Now, altar calls, revival, and re- revivals, and renewal moments seem to be essential to certain seasons of life. Moments where God breaks through the noise, where we wake or are awoken to life in Christ, aware to the spiritual battle raging around us, awakened to enter back into the fight. And in, is- in-, in Israel's history, they had many of these, right? The crossing of the Red Sea was one of those moments. The victory over the Egyptians, being sustained by God 40 years in the wilderness. The Jordan, crossing the Jordan into the promised land. They had many spiritual revivals. They had many moments that they said, we want to remember, we want to remember. But many times these events were, many times, sorry, many times these events were remembered through feasts like Purim and Passover. In many of these cases, the Israelites set up monuments or altars. You can see this all throughout the narrative. And so the question is, what are the monuments that we're going to set up, church? What are, the, what are the things like, I'm going to remember these things? Now, I don't know how you feel about tattoos, and I don't really care. Like, I have so many of them now, it just doesn't matter. And this one time I had this lady tell me, like, your mother would be so disappointed. She didn't know my mom, so I'm like, well, you know. Okay, thanks, you know. Anyway, what I have on here just a moment to talk to you about these. Every single one of these tells a story. And I put them on my body to remember. I put this on my body after seven years of being in Santa Rosa because of God's faithfulness to me. He'd been with me the whole time, every step of the way. I put this on my arm. This is my daughter's heart because she had surgery when she was 11 days old. It has arrows going through it, and I never wanted to forget the pain that we went through and yet God's presence with us. And I could tell you story after story, and I could go into... The long version of all these things. But I put these on my body to remember, to never forget what God has done for me. And this is just a a small sampling of the ways in which we do this. But we determine never to forget. Now, I am not suggesting that everybody go out and get the Purim tattoo or anything like that. It's not what I'm saying. But I am asking, how do we remember How do we remember what Esther and the people living in exile seem to have forgotten until there was that moment of crisis? I mean, have you ever had that experience where you wake up to life in Christ and as joyful as you are, you're also looking back and being like, what a fool I was. What have I been doing? How I have been ignoring the kindness and the faithfulness of God. 
Have you ever had that experience where you feel like you, you're, you've been awoken to that? And, there, and, and as much as there is joy over what God is doing, there's also this grief. How could I have forgotten the one who has imprinted me on the palms of his hands? How could, have I, how could I have forgotten him? How could I have forgotten that he left the courts of heaven? He became nothing. And he served my need. He came to make my life, my world whole. How can I, how can I forget him? And yet we do. So church, how is it that we remember who we are? That we've been created by God. That we've been created for God. How do we remember that our hearts will be restless until they rest in the Lord? How do we remember that we have been called to be a light to the nations? How do we remember God's faithfulness? How do we remember that even when God seems absent, he is present and at work? How do we remember that evil will not win in the end? How do we go forward in life in faith rather than fear? Especially when the way ahead is darkened and unknown. So Grace and I were just having a conversation like this the other night and just talking about the unknown, what is ahead, and how you just, how, how do you go forward? How do you make wise decisions for your life and for your kids? You know, we, our kids are nine, eight, and five, and there's all this fear of the unknown and what is ahead and how do we make wise decisions? Well, we do this, first of all, by remembering who God is, by remembering what he has done, and that is in the pages of Scripture, of course, but it's also our story. We recount all the times of God's faithfulness, all the times of God's goodness. As I said in the Bible, a call to remember, especially when tied to covenant, sign, or ceremony, is vibrant, it's powerful, it's participatory. I love what Luke describes the early church doing. It says that the church experiencing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost. And we could say, you know, the existential love of God being poured into their heart, or that you know, existential experience of like just knowing the uh, love of God firsthand. That knowledge that Christ was ascended to the Father and that all enemies were being made subject to him. They had a power in the heavens beyond all power on earth. And they had the presence of the Lord with them always. It was these things, this, what God did that caused the early church to devote themselves. And I think that's a very significant word when we're talking about remembering. They devoted themselves to, we know, four things, right? The apostles' teaching. And I know we're not in the book of Acts right now, but I just love this. And I think that this maybe is just insightful to our own lives. Devoting yourself is a great way to remember, to set up a rhythm and a habit for your life. And so the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is that? Well, the apostles were these guys that hung out with Jesus for three years and heard Jesus teach and watched him heal and, and 
watched him just handle people graciously with kindness uh, and, and just with grace. The apostles are also the ones who were revealed, remember, on the road to Emmaus, how all the Bible is pointing to Jesus. And so I like to see this as the apostles' teaching is Jesus' stories. They devoted themselves to Jesus' stories. Tell us again, Peter. Tell us again how he opened their eyes. Tell us again how everywhere he went, he reversed the curse of sin. Tell us again how he laid down the glories of heaven for us. Tell us the story. Tell us how even in weakness and death he was victorious. Tell us the Jesus story. The early church also devoted themselves to fellowship, a a community way of life, and that life was centered around the person of Jesus. So they committed themselves, devoted themselves, to remembering the Jesus way of life by practicing it together, bearing one another's burdens, a model and posture of self-sacrifice, of you before me, of love and service, They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. We want to enact again and again and again how that body was crushed for us, how that blood was spilled for our sins, how now we are one body. We want to remember the Jesus sacrifice for sin. And finally, they devoted themselves to prayer, right? Now, because of what Jesus had done, they had access to the Father, and this is something that they devoted themselves to. And these bound the church together, and I think you can read in the, in the pages of Acts <clears throat> that as they do this, it says that fear came upon every soul. This is very similar to what happens here in the book of Esther. Fear comes upon everyone, and some people are like, we're Jews, we're with you guys, we want to be a part of what is happening here. This is something unique, this is something powerful, this is something special that is taking place. The same thing is happening in Esther that's happening here in the book of Acts. When God's people devote themselves to remember, to practice these things, to put the work of God into remembrance, people take notice of that. And so this is just the challenge that I want to leave you guys with this morning, to remember. Because you see, staying in the fight, staying awake to who you are in Messiah, staying alert to the mission of God and the need of the world takes, I believe, both fire, spirit, Holy Spirit coming upon us and convicting us, but it also takes form. Right, We need the Holy Spirit actively moving in our lives, us responding to his promptings, engaging in his work in the world, but also a life of spiritual rhythms and practices that keep us grounded. The early church had such a rhythm. <clears throat> life together, regularly gathering, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and prayer. The Jews in Persia also had a rhythm. Never forget, we bind ourselves to these two days to remember God's faithfulness, to remember the turning of tides, the reversal of fortunes, how everything sad will come untrue. So, 
In closing, the critical moments of our life when we must choose whether or not to identify with God's people, these deeply matter. And yes, we need spiritual awakening, and identifying as one of God's people isn't just about a decision, it's about a way of life. We've been talking about this a lot this year. And so Purim is just one example of that, right? It invites us to see life that way. It's a rhythm built into the calendar to remind us that our identity is easily forgotten, that physical and spiritual danger is all around us, and that no matter what, God preserves his people. And so church, I encourage you as we close out the story of Esther and the work of God, God's work in people, is that you bind yourself to remember, that you devote yourself to remember tomorrow the faithfulness of God. That God's presence goes with you today when you leave this community. That he's with you tomorrow, whatever task is before you. He's, he's gone before you. Uh, David says in Psalm 139, you hedge me bef- behind and before. God, you're before me. God, you're behind me. You're on my right. You're on my left. You're under me. You're over me. He's with us everywhere we go. His grace, his power, his desire to be a part of what we're doing and to give us strength for every task is available every moment of the day. So take these things, bind yourself to remember these things. If that's morning prayer, then do it. Bind yourself to this. If that is morning psalm reading and meditation, then bind yourself to it. If that's a phone call with a brother or sister in our community to just check in and to get prayer and to give prayer, then do these things. Bind yourself to remember the faithfulness of God and begin to live a life of consistency. A life that actually properly puts on display the flourishing and fullness of what God has come to bring to humanity. Amen.